Hello, hello. John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to our podcast, What Does That Mean? Science, health and the social fabric is our beat. This episode, we're doing things a little differently, essentially asking one big question. Should we have just cancelled 2020 for our children? Forget about school kids, go fishing in the bathtub, start that stamp collection you've always dreamed of. Anything but pretend the lounge room is a classroom because you'll come away feeling like a loser. That's not me saying it, goodness no. But the news media here and abroad have banged this sad drum. Kids who have spent months remote learning have been falling so woefully behind, it's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. It's a disaster. Is that true? This week I'm asking three experts to put the COVID impact on families and on learning into some perspective. I ask them, to what extent do parents, teachers and children need to manage their expectations of one another and of themselves? Professor Mark Dads is Director of the Sydney Child Behaviour Research Clinic. This operates as a clinical service for parents of children with developmental, behavioural and emotional problems, as well as a training and research centre. A major thrust of this work is understanding interparental processes, whereby parental systems work together to maximise child outcomes and their own health and happiness. I began by asking Professor Dads for the good and the bad news on how COVID-19 has impacted on families. So very soon after the lockdown measures began, uh, we started to hear a lot of experts speak about the unintended mental health consequences that may follow from this. And um, a lot of that was very well considered and, uh, you know, based on pretty clear evidence that when you hothouse people together in a house, maybe people have lost work, a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress and so on, that if you do have problems with interparental conflict and abuse or child behaviour problems and so on, you it's going to be like the situation is on steroids and, you know, it's going to get worse. And there has been... Uh, a lot of evidence has emerged to support that. Reports of domestic violence have gone up. Um, there's been a fair bit of data showing that the conflict with children, just managing children in the home and so on, has created a lot of parenting stress and so on and so forth. Interestingly, though, when you hothouse families like that, if you have got a situation where there still is positives between the parents and positives with the parents and the children, then, of course, you've got the potential that there's going to be some uh, some positive learning and some growth and so on. And there's also some evidence of this. Um, for example, we just uh, surveyed uh, hundreds of families out in the Liverpool hospital area, and we found that while a small percentage that were quite stressed had an increase in problems, families also reported that it was a time of um, increasing engagement, increasing closeness, 
and so on as well. So I think the situation has kind of pushed us in both directions, if you like. You know, there's been some very adverse consequences for people that were struggling, but there's also been a time of growth where people perhaps have rediscovered what's important to them and how much they love their families and so on. I asked Mark Dads if he thought all those unhappy news reports might be true, that remote learning is creating problems that could hurt the long-term outcomes for kids. Well, I'm not, I'm not so much of an educational expert, so, you know, you can take my uh, comments as, as you will, but I, de- I find that a little bit hard to imagine that that's going to be a lifelong problem. You know, as you say, children learn. My experience is that kids that are kept out of school for a little bit of time, if it's a positive experience, they're okay. They, they recover. And of course, we've, we've, it's not as if you've just had a couple of kids kept out and have become isolated. All the children have been at home, learning at home and so on. So I don't think that there's any chance that that's going to lead to any kind of national disaster in education and so on. Um, also, you know, we've, it's probably happening all around the world as well that, that kids have had this time where they've missed out on formal schooling. So, you know, it's all kind of relative in a way. But as you say, I think there's a where the families have been doing well. It really has been a time where I think it's opened parents' eyes to what it's like to try and educate kids. It's it's for some of them, it's been a bonding experience. It's been a can be quite a positive experience as well as, of course, adding, uh, you know, quite a, a workload burden and some stress and so on. These positives suggest that because of COVID-19, we might all get a bit warmer and fuzzier and appreciative, more content and satisfied from simply having a family and realising each other's worth. But of course, one day we'll probably assume something like the old life. So what then? COVID may not be damning forever, our children to substandard book learning, but will its attendant gifts of deeper connection endure beyond these hard times. I I think you've touched on something that's really important there is what are the long-term effects of this or, you know, what are the sort of sustained effects that we're going to see? And I I think that's where we will learn a lot here. Are any of the positive benefits that have occurred from family closeness going to last? And for those that haven't done so well and have been struggling what's going to occur there in terms of the long term. We we have a very useful um, model of conflict in psychology, which is about coercive strategies. And it's very interesting that once you start to use coercive strategies with your spouse or your partner or your children, where you up the escalation, you yell and so on, and then that person responds, these develop their own life. They develop their own momentum. And once you've got into that pattern of conflict, it can be very, very hard to reverse it. They tend to have their own momentum. And so it's possible a lot of people may come out of this, even when we return to some sort of normality, that they find that the conflict that grew during this period may be sustaining itself and they're going to need some extra support to kind of get that back out of the system. 
At what stage do you reckon we'll, we, we, could we get any kind of gauge of the extent, the extent of difficulties in Australian households? Yeah, it's a very good question. Well, look, it's it's interesting because you've got all sorts of people surveying all sorts of other people about their mental health and their families and so on. And so there are there are studies coming out all over the place, um, you know, kind of documenting what's going on. A lot of them are quite negative, showing that there's been these increase in mental health problems and family conflict and so on like that. What we really need are some larger scale, really well-conducted epidemiological surveys that are not just small samples but large samples that we can compare with previous data and look at, you know, how the population is faring. So, for example, there have been national mental health surveys in in families and, and adults and children and so on. So I would suspect that in the next couple of years there'll be some large, really well-conducted studies and we will be able to kind of compare how the population is travelling compared to the last time the survey was done. Sort of like fingers crossed on that. One, one last thing. I mean, the thing I'm interested in is the idea of village life. There will be families, as we've said, and I've, I've seen it, you've, you've seen it yourself, that have, have been thriving and have been discovering... Um, Quite a bit of joy, as well as the as well as the strain, and then we have other families struggling. It's it's um, there's no real mechanism, is there, out there to, where where one group of families can be of assistance to another group of families, um, as as it might have been in in a in a healthy village, if there's ever been if there's ever been such a thing. Yes, I find this such an interesting point that you've raised. You know, it's. There was a psychologist back in the 1970s uh, called Yuri Bronfenbrenner, and uh, he was one of the first people that pointed out that a child's development, for example, is not just dependent on their immediate interactions with the family, but it's also how the family is embedded in the village, if Mm. you like, how the parents get on with the teachers that are also in the child's life, uh, the the sporting clubs, the church, whatever the family might be involved in. And Bronfen Brenner said that the child's development is going to be directly proportional to the number of connections that are on the same page about what the child's value, what the values are that we all believe in, what the support we give to each other and so on. And where a child is raised where they're isolated or whether the parents, you know, kind of think the teachers are a bunch of dickheads or whatever they are and, and like that, it's going to it's going to hold the child's development back. But where the child is seeing that the village works as a team and is supportive and so on, it's going to propel them forward into a stronger, more resilient, happy person. So I think this is a really critical point. And what, you know, what happened to the... The village, you know, if it was existing at all, because we tend to live in quite, you know, kind of isolated cells these days, um, I think is a really, really important issue that's worth considering as we come out of this. Dr. Terry Bowles is Associate Professor of Educational and Developmental Psychology from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. 
We asked Terry ahead of this interview to ponder the positives and consolations of the times we are living in, especially for educators and families being parents and students. What have you come up with, Terry? John, I think there's a number of, if not completely positive, um, somewhat positive aspects. And I think I'll begin by saying that um, I, I really do have to give some uh, respect to those who have suffered a great deal as a result of COVID-19. It, um, it doesn't mean that they won't experience something positive in the long term, but the loss of loved ones, the loss of a job, uh, the loss that has generally impacted upon people has been great. Nevertheless, we can experience as a function of loss some adjustment and some change in our lives that is still positive. And I think that goes right across from the individual level, the family level, work life. Um, and I'd, most recently, I've been pondering decision-making and politics at the, at the upper levels of social and macro uh, organisations. You know, one of the things that's coming across at that level is that people want cooperation and they want far less adversarial conflict. And I think that's probably one of the things that you can point out as a real positive across, across the board. Regardless you're saying that's coming through the community? I'd say it's coming through the community, but at work, people, you know, have, have done enormously positive and cooperative things. Families have had to cooperate where once upon a time they might have had, had more conflict. Um, uh, politicians have, the, the ones that have been apparently successful, have put aside their egos a bit more than they might, might have. Um, and there is an expectation that um, different levels of government would cooperate more. I think that's very positive, yeah. All right. So what about the day-to-day? -day? I mean, you've got parents at home and they've, they've, they've been feeling the stress of dealing with kids at home who've then been attempting remote learning. The, they've been under pressure of thinking that if they don't do a good job and if their children don't keep up, it's going to be a disaster. And the educators themselves, the teachers themselves have been in a... Well, they've been doing the same thing, haven't they? They've been at home with their kids and they've also been trying to uh, to do their regular job. There's been quite a bit of negativity about that in the way the media's portrayed it. It's not We don't want to gild the situation because it can't be. But this notion that people's lives, you know, to say the children's lives will be just kind of devastated by falling behind or whatever, um, I, I, I'd be hoping um, there's some perspective there that... Uh, parents can sort of reach out for and, 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 and be comforted by? I think there's a number of things that we can draw on. Um, the first would be that children will learn regardless of what structures are put before them. And you need only look at the different types of schools that you can enrol your children in under normal circumstances. Some have a very free and... Um, relatively uh, unconstrained approach to learning and others um, are really quite structured and formal. Neither of them seem to produce students that are extreme in views or performance. So I was surprised at one level to hear that educators automatically thought that without daily doses of education, we would have 
children with dwindling cognitive capabilities. I, I just don't <laughs> see that. Do you think? Do you think it's, uh, it was just basically? Look, you know, whether you're the prime minister or you're a teacher or a, or a, or a train driver, we're all prone to insecurities, aren't we? we? We're suddenly faced with a major change, and I've I've seen seen this in say the the way certain um, health officials very early on with COVID would get up, and sometimes you'd think. Why are they saying this? Why they sort of all, they were saying things they didn't really have to say yet that they weren't even sure of, but ultimately what they were voicing with their anxieties because they're human beings. We sort of think, here's the chief medical officer, for example, but ultimately he's still a human being. He's got his worries. So perhaps when we were hearing this from teachers, perhaps we were just hearing that ordinary human frailty, but we were giving it the authority because they're a teacher. Do you think maybe there's something in that? I think most certainly. Um, we all want to know that we're needed and that we're loved. And if the structures are not allowing us to be needed and loved, mm. and we have to redefine how we communicate with people, especially in a non-physical way, because school spaces are very physical. Yeah. We, we have a disconnect, and that's very difficult to deal with. Clearly, you know, it's not impossible. People homeschool from the outback all the time. So um, but... Some people would find it very difficult, and that is um, more about the teacher than it is about the student. I think there's probably uh, there's a number of children who have, have uh, sort of kicked into a student overdrive and set up their learning spaces as if they were at school, if not more so. Yeah. And there's probably a middle group that have muddled through, and there's a, probably a, a third group who haven't lifted a book the whole time and they've had a wow of a time. And we'll look back on this as a real... Uh, an experience, you know, but it's very hard to throw yourself forward as a student and then look back on the present and say, this is what it'll be like. Needless to say, um, this is probably the first time in three generations that there's been a, commu a whole community disruption, such as war or um, disease or pestilence. This is the first that, you know, I've, I've never experienced it and I'm pretty old, but my Grandchildren, I, I hope we'll look back and see the love of their parents, uh, the care of the community, and the facility to do some things in freedom that they wouldn't have otherwise had had they had normal school. So you're talking about really the, the last time this happened would have been in the Second World War and great disruptions of learning and, and economy and, and all sorts of things. And polio. Oh, yes. That's right. Yes, my, uh, my mother-in-law, uh, a great great person of um, 92 years of age uh, can tell you great stories of polio and how it was dealt with and it's not dissimilar. So look, from the learning point of view, just to sort of recap, We've, we've had early on some anxieties expressed by teachers about what's going to happen and how that's going to cope. And do you think it's that's the that anxiety has just kind of ballooned basically through partly through the media and then partly through parents' own anxieties on how they're coping? Okay. Um, I'll talk to two things there, John. First, generalised anxiety is not unlike a virus and it hunts out spaces where it can... Um, be transferred from people to people in language, in emotion, in gesture, in posture, in our behaviours. And 
most of us are anxious at the moment. So it doesn't take a great deal to scratch the surface and get us anxious, especially teachers. And that's what's happened here. In terms of learning, which is the second point, I take great consolation in students and their capacity to, to um, I think it's um, deal with fluctuations in capability. Volsener, a very old researcher now, um, the, the, the research they did was very uh, um, good and very old, but he, they were the first people to define the term moratorium. And I'm sure if you think back to your secondary school days, and it's usually associated with secondary school, around year nine, yeah. students just go out to lunch. You know, they're there, but they're really not there. <laughs> um, now, that may be the case, and, and probably the, the, the most... Um, the best equivalent for what may be happening for some students just because they're disconnected and they don't have the, um, the facilities um, and, and, and the school can't provide as much for them, whereas others are really booting up. Now, a moratorium is not a bad thing. It just means you're taking a bit of a rest, you're cognitively not there, you might be physically there or not, but what it does do, especially at puberty, is it gives your body the chance to catch up with a whole lot of other things that are going on and not necessarily deal with cognitive load so much. So it's a natural process. But that it has happened for a number of people and may have been induced by this experience, I think, is not worth worrying about. Um, kids will catch up. Um, and the worst case scenario, we could say that every child is six months behind. So every child is six months behind. That, that may be the fact. What if you had a situation, I mean, people, you talk about people repeating a year, and I'm not sort of saying that would be necessary, but it almost has this sort of stigmatised um, aspect to it, the idea of someone repeating a year. Is it, is it such a disaster? Um, I wouldn't think so. Look, there are structures that happen all the time that we're not aware of. For instance, um, I'm pretty sure that in Queensland, this is a bit of a bump year because they introduced PrEP. I think it was some 13-odd right. years ago, and that means that their university um, enrolments will be a bit lower. So there are demographic and structural processes that, that, that cause um, concern. If, if you were to say that students had a cognitive lag as a result of this, mm. and all of them did, mm. then it really doesn't matter because they'll catch it up in six months. Not, not They'll catch it up once they you know, take the time to grow older um, in their educational settings. Mm. That is, if there is such an impact, um, there's nothing to say that students were, are not keeping up. There's nothing to say that they won't even advance in some areas. Probably not the areas where there is a high level of um, teacher-structured instruction. But well, in I was going to say, areas, I mean, perhaps is the... Is the is the big issue here, or a fundamental issue here, a kind of a, a disconnect between the learning capabilities and, in fact, the learning activities of kids and the curriculum, this thing that sort of seems to have to be followed that's the, that's, that's, that's rigid, that is actually rigid, whereas what's going on at the moment um, demands flexibility? Most certainly. And um, I would, I think for some children it's probably a better mix I mean, the one thing you can say about COVID-19 is that it's given privilege to people that are extremely introverted. Yes. 
this is finally, their life. Fi- finally, I'd sort of say, what would you say to parents? Because there's uh, a, a lot of parents, I don't know when you say a lot, it just sort of sounds so general, doesn't it? But who can be very focused on what their kids are doing and the achievements, um, getting them to do <clears throat> violin lessons and guitar lessons and... Uh, very keen that they are going to be performing at the top of the class and that they've already half got their children's lives mapped out for them. Um, I'm, I'm, it'd be interesting, this this situation that we're all living in, what, what that has possibly done to those expectations. I personally, I hope it's loosened them up a little bit, but um, I suspect it's probably creating, for those parents, quite a bit of anxiety. Oh, my yes. God, little Johnny, he's not gonna, he's not going to be king of the world. I um I come from a slightly different approach, John. Um, I I honestly don't think that education should be quite so. I think it could be structured, and I think it can be rigorous in its presentation and ordered. But I don't like the implication that you must learn, because much of what we learn now we won't use in future. And I think music learning, which is a really classic example of how people might achieve, um, is often overplayed as a very structured and a very achieving process. And I've seen some some wonderful and very competent children come through, right through secondary school, as performers in drama and performers in music particularly, and they have put in hours. Another example would be swimming, where students have dedicated themselves to getting out four and five mornings um, a week to, to train. Now, my hope for them would be, if they don't make a career of it, that they haven't been burnt out to the point where they don't swim anymore or they don't play anymore. Um, the, the benefit of these activities from a world perspective is that you keep doing them and advancing them in your, in your middle and older age. And I think much of that is lost. Dr. Elizabeth Rouse has worked in the field of education for more than 30 years. She's taught in early childhood settings as well as in schools. Additionally, she has worked in special education, community-based family support programs, and as a policy advisor at both state and local government level. Liz is also senior lecturer in education, early childhood, at Deakin University. I asked Liz how parents might best manage their expectations given the end of the school year is bearing down at the speed of light. No doubt there will be some anxiety about how the year of COVID-19 has impacted on their child's report card. We all want our kids to be successful, but do we need to be thinking a little differently about what that success means? I think one of the things that I would be saying to parents is to to be thinking about and asking themselves what is important to them as a parent for their child. And I think, as you've said, all parents want their children to be successful. All children want want to ensure, all parents want to ensure that their children are keeping up and are in the mix, that they're not falling behind. And so they're the sorts of concerns that parents have. And so... Thinking about those, what's important to them for their child moving forward. Um, 
in the next sort of 10 weeks of school is going to really help them put things into perspective. And I think report cards are going to look very different this year than they have in the past. Every child in the, in the world has been affected by this um, COVID-19. And so what was expectations 12 months ago are not necessarily the same expectations that people have this year, that it's not that we're going to lower the standards or, or, or drop our expectations, but we're going to be thinking differently about, about what an outcome for this year of school looks like. And I think some of the outcomes that we'd be wanting to look at is, is in the Australian curriculum, the general capabilities, pers- the personal social capabilities, the problem solving, the, the ethical understanding. They're the sorts of aspects of the curriculum that are often being lost when people are thinking about literacy and numeracy results. And as a parent, I would want to know that my child is able to go back into the classroom, reconnect with their friends, reconnect with their teachers, have a strong sense of who they are as a learner, how they learn and feel good about themselves is, to me, much more important than wanting to know that my child has met some academic, arbitrary academic benchmarks that were put in place 12 months ago before all of this happened. And, of course, a lot has happened. As Terry Bowles pointed out, COVID-19 has brought about all manner of loss. But more generally, it's put a level of fear in communities it is so new and so strange that we probably still haven't processed it. There's evidence of impatience and denial, but the world is very different now. One of the real learning issues for children is learning to adapt to this new world. We know that trauma does impact upon learning. Um, and so and some of these children have experienced trauma. We we forget that, you know, in Victoria we've had 800 people die. So those 800 people have had 800 families um, and connections. We hear of people overseas. We've got many people here in Australia who have got people overseas that are, that are, that are experiencing really strong vulnerabilities and high high cases of, of death and, 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 and illness. We've also got children who have been experienced, who experienced the bushfires over Christmas. So there's a whole range of other impacts that go towards the well-being of a, of a young learner um, that, that need to be taken into consideration. But, but most children, most families have a lot of protective mechanisms around their children where they are able to hear their children's concerns listen to their children and create connections for the children that are really important to to build those supports for them. Because if children feel supported in their learning, then they will learn. Dr Rouse not only sees it unhelpful, this idea that remote learning has been a disaster, that young lives have been irretrievably ruined, she reckons it is shortchanging what parents have actually achieved. I think what it does is it also neglects and under negates and undervalues what parents are doing at home. You know, the parent who doesn't speak English is still having conversations with their children. They may be reading to their children in their home language. They're talking to their children about what, what they're doing. They're actually asking the children what they're what, what, what they're learning at school because they don't understand and they can't do it. So we're really taking away or undervaluing what what I call the invisible parent, the parent who was at home in the background really supporting their child in their learning who's not being seen because they're not necessarily working with their children six hours a day. They're not 
asking their children to submit work every day or they're not reading to their children in English or they're not able to help with the tasks because they don't read English are still doing an amazing amount of work with their children at home and we undervalue the the importance of home language and conversation and and being engaged with your child and I think it's that notion of engagement and what that looks like which is not being measured accurately because it's being measured by visibility and outputs and it's not being measured by connection. What about teachers do you get any sense of how teachers feel about it that they're They've got this great job ahead of them to sort of recover through this or are they equally, do they have a sort of a reasonable perspective that, that isn't forcing them into a situation of panic? Well, I think there's, like with the rest of the population, I think there's people who are seeing, teachers who are seeing um, the, the world the way you and I are talking about it, but there are other teachers who are feeling under inordinate pressure to ensure that these children are doing the meeting the academic milestones that are set out. And some of that comes from the pressure of parents who have expectations for their children. And, again, we're, we're living in a systemic um, uh, in societal uh, uh, world where we are being, people are being viewed by the academic achievements that they, that they create. And so when parents are feeling concerned that their children are falling behind, they're putting pressure on the teachers and then the teachers are getting similar pressures from 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 the, 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 the expectations of society that these children aren't going to be emotionally and, and academically scarred for the rest of their lives. But we also have to remember that many of these teachers are, are at home working with their own children who are going to their own schools. And so like the rest of us, they are parents working from home um, teaching other children in other schools. And so they're faced with the same dilemmas of how they're splitting their time between their work and their commitment to the children in their class or their subject um, while being being sort of committed to supporting their own children. And so like the rest of the world, teachers are also parents working from home. And I think that often gets forgotten about in this rhetoric around what teachers are doing and what parents are doing. And I think we've all got to sit back and look at what we have achieved rather than focusing on what we think we haven't achieved. And I think once we give ourselves permission to look at what we've what look at the good things that have, that have happened and what we've actually been made, able to achieve in this time, I think that the world will actually move into a different perspective. Well, I hope so. And I'm, I look I think there'll be people listening to this or think, oh well maybe I it, it's it's not it's not the great disaster I've told that it is, but I suspect there'll also be parents who are probably paying a lot of money to private schools mm. especially, but not always just private schools, who are mm. thinking, well, you know, I want my you know Tarquin or Cody or you know, Melissa to 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 be a winner, and uh, that may not necessarily be that helpful at yeah. this time. But I also think that the parents who have those expectations often have those expectations anyway. Oh yeah, um, yeah, sure. And 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 I think you know we're putting a lot of store. And I was having this conversation with someone the other day about you know what about the children who aren't going to achieve, not going to meet the milestones by the end of the year, but though, we don't know that those children wouldn't have already done that. Know that we know that learners are individual, and that and that you know in every year we have high achievers and we have children who don't aren't as successful as others. I guess, I guess I guess the point. One of the points, that's right. But I guess one of the points I was making by thinking about this terms of expectations were well, it was there's a message there for everybody, but I guess there sure. is perhaps a message there for people who who have always had high expectations mm. and desires for their children that maybe. At the moment, 
if they can possibly do it, maybe they need to tamp that down a little bit. I think so, because what then happens is that falls back on the child who feels that they're 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 a failure because they're not meeting the expectations of others. And 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 children will then have expectations on themselves to meet the expectations of others. So I think it's really important for parents to sit back and think about what do they really want for their children? Because if children are feeling that they are a failure because they're not meeting other people's expectations, well, then that does take away that sense of resilience and and problem-solving and all those positive dispositions because they're going to spiral into a world where they they're not they don't feel they're good enough. And if people and we know that if learners don't feel they're good enough and they don't feel they they're good learners and they don't feel they can achieve, then they won't. To some people, this is all going to sound a bit namby pamby. Look, Tarquin, do the study and get good marks. Jesus. But again, it has to be said we live in a different world at the moment. Not as an excuse for our little darlings to flunk at quadratic equations or phonics, but there is perhaps an opportunity to look afresh at what successful learning is really about and how it's achieved. What's really important for learning is not so much the academic outputs that children create, but those dispositions, those sense of connections, that sense of engagement. And so what, what's actually happening for children at home is that many of these children are actually learning better because they're finding that the, the one-on-one time with the teacher, the, 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 the space away from the distraction of the classroom, have been really supportive in their learning, having that parent there supporting them, not necessarily in sitting there with them doing their schoolwork, but supporting them in their, in their um, sense of emotional well-being, their sense of who they are, and understanding them as learners so much better. Uh, and we know, uh, research has told us, and I know from experience, that when children have a sense of resilience, when children are able, able to cope with adversity, when children can adapt and be flexible and think and think about their learning rather than their tasks, that they're actually having better outcomes for their learning. Children can, can learn skills and knowledge if they've got the right disposition. And so that's what's really important in this particular time is to to move away from the academic outputs to look at the learning and the learning outcomes that these children are achieving, which is about that sense of um, resilience, that sense of problem solving, being able to deal with the adversities that have come their way and come through to the other side. That's that they're the dispositions that make for good learning. And if you've got those, you can pick up the skills. Um, that you may have missed out on when you weren't necessarily engaged in the classroom. Oh, it's a hot day and I'm sweating out the fact that you're gone for good, that you never loved me like I loved you. As the sky turns the colour of milk, dense, humid, halyards clanking a little in the smallest breeze. Whew, it's not even summer yet. That's a poem called Goodbye by Robert Long. And that's what I'm doing now. Goodbye. Talk to you next time. <laughs>